Well, good morning, Branch Church. Everyone here, all of our church family online, it's great to be with you as we continue our worship this morning through the hearing and the receiving of the Word of God, and by God's grace as we leave here, the doing of it. Now, growing up, you hear a lot of songs, would you say? And over time, you begin to memorize the lyrics of those songs, and you could probably sing them at the drop of a hat. And then someone comes along years later and says, what did you just say? Sing that again? No, those aren't the lyrics. And you're like, no, I'm pretty sure those are the lyrics. I've been singing those for like 15 years. No, I don't think those are the lyrics. Here, let me, let me show you what the lyrics actually are. And your mind's blown. I've been singing the song wrong this whole time. Have you ever done that? So Prince has a song called Little Red Corvette. Little Red Corvette. When I heard the song, here's what I heard. E-Rec, come back. Uh, yeah, I don't ask me. It sounds stupid now. But when I first heard it, that's what I heard. I thought E-Rec was a girl. That was her name. Have you ever met an E-Rec? Another guy, he was on a, or at least he wrote into a show, and the, the opening song of Lion King. You know, the famous one where they all come, they lift up Simba, the new king's been born. He thought the lyrics were, Pennsylvania, Malavisa. <laughs> it turns out if you go online and do a quick search, you'll find out misheard lyrics are pretty common. There was one song where most people hear it like this, hold me closer, Tony Danza. <laughs> it's actually, hold me closer, Tiny Dancer. It still sounds like Tony Danza to me. Like, you got to really search for it. Today, as we go into John chapter 3, we're going to meet a, nam, a man named Nicodemus. And he's going to be singing the song of God's salvation for a long time, only to meet Jesus and find out he's been singing the wrong lyrics this whole time. And Jesus is going to teach him the correct lyrics to the song of God's salvation in a way he will never forget, and we shall not soon forget either. And as we study John chapter three, the first 21 verses, here's what we're going to learn. You must be born of the spirit to enter God's kingdom. You must be born of the spirit by faith in Jesus Christ in order to enter into God's presence and have a relationship with him. If you have your Bibles, turn with me please to John chapter three, and let's begin to unpack this together. John chapter three, beginning in verse one. John writes and he says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. For the first time, we are introduced to a man named Nicodemus and the group that he is a part of. The group of Pharisees were pretty well respected. They had the support of the people and they had a very noble cause. Their whole cause was to keep God's law, the written law, and what they also believed the oral law, which were laws given to help you protect the written law over time. They wanted to make sure that they built a, a safe gate around the law that no infringement possible would happen. Large part this happened because of their interesting history. So somewhere around 165, 175 BC, I forget the exact dates, there was a man named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Kind of a mouthful, but this guy fancied himself a god, comes into Jerusalem, sacks it, starts to do terrible stuff in the temple, profane things against their law. And then we have the uprising of the Maccabees. Have you heard of them? Well, the Maccabees rise up, they fight, they win. Uh, apparently there was a gentleman named Hasidim who was a part of this. And it's believed that the Pharisees descended from this guy. 
So they came out of this revolt of saying, we're not gonna have this. We're not gonna break the law. We are never gonna go back there ever again. And thus you have the birth of the Pharisees name probably means the righteous ones or the set apart ones, something along those lines. Now this tells us a lot about Nicodemus. This tells us that he was well-respected by the community, by his peers. He was part of a group with a very noble task to keep the purity of the word and to worship God. So their aim was very, very good. Interesting history. Uh, He was probably from the middle class and was probably a mediator between the lower and the upper classes, the poorer class and the aristocracy. Not only is he a part of this group, he's also a ruler among the Jews. He's a very important person among this group, and we'll find out more about that as we go forward. Verse two, this man came to Jesus by night. Why would he come at night? Yeah, secret. So nobody would know what he's probably doing. Very interesting. He comes by night and he said to him, Rabbi, which is a very courteous title for teacher. He says that we know, oh, I got to pause. He says we, who is we? Who is he speaking on behalf of? Nicodemus is not speaking on behalf of himself, but probably more Pharisees. There's more people he's representing here. We know that you are a teacher come from God. Here's how I know this. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus has either seen the signs of Jesus or he's heard of them or seen the result. And now he comes and he's got a conclusion. Firstly, I know you're a teacher. Secondly, I think that you are a teacher come from God because no one can do what you're doing. This is a good start. However, it's a bad conclusion to arrive at, to think that Jesus is just a teacher just a miracle worker. This is a mistake that so many people make. Let you not make that mistake either. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What's interesting here is Nicodemus doesn't ask him a question. Nicodemus doesn't ask him to respond. He just says, I know that you're from God. And then Jesus begins to now jump right into salvation, right into the heart of it. Why does he do this? Well, probably because one, he needs it. And two, when he jumps into it, it's gonna help Nicodemus realize who he truly is and Jesus's role in salvation. You must be born again. It can also be translated born from above. I actually prefer this translation because it talks about the source of where this is coming from. So Nicodemus, you need something outside of you something outside of you, divine transcendent to come and actually to make you born again in order to actually enter into God's kingdom. Now, this would have been shocking to Nicodemus because he believed along with the prevailing religious thought of the day that every Jew was in, we're good, we're in. You know, unless you're an apostate, you know, you forsake God or you're like really bad, like Adolf Hitler or something like that. Like you're pretty much in, but Jesus tells him you're not in. What do you mean I'm not in? Nicodemus, I'm a ruler of the Jews, Pharisees, I keep the law. Like, I tick the boxes, man. If Nicodemus can't get in, there ain't no hope for anybody getting in. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus, a few things here. He doesn't believe what Jesus said. He doesn't even understand the categories Jesus is working with here. And there's a potential where he's actually being a little bit snarky, snarky, 
he's sneering at Jesus, being a little mocky here. Can, can he enter a second time into his mom's stomach? Come on, Jesus, are you, hear what you just said. Am I supposed to go into my mom's stomach a second time and be born in order to be saved? I don't know for sure, but I think he's being a little bit of a little bit of an attitude there. Verse five, Jesus said, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Water and spirit are key here. What do they mean? Well, first I'd like to look at some different interpretations. And then we're gonna look at some keys to actually interpreting this verse. And then we will arrive at a conclusion together. So some people say water, spirit, and they go, okay, this is two separate births. Water would be like being born of your mother. And maybe water is a picture of the amniotic fluid or something like that. And then the spirit would be your, tra- your, your second birth, your, your, your supernatural birth. So a natural and a supernatural birth. You have to have those to be saved. Now, I don't necessarily think that's what's being taught here. As we'll look at the Greek construction, I think that it's going to hint towards one birth, not two. And it does seem a little weird that Jesus would point out, you have to be born first of your mom and then born again. Like, why would he need to point out the obvious first one? I don't know. I just don't think that's it. Second one is some people see water here as Christian baptism and then the spirit as the Holy Spirit. The struggle with believing that this is Christian baptism is that Nicodemus is supposed to know what Jesus is talking about. We'll see this here around verse 10. He doesn't know. How is he supposed to know about a Christian baptism in the name of Jesus when that hasn't been taught yet? And as we go on, baptism, water baptism is not talked about again in this passage. And theologically, it's not something that you have to do in order to be saved, but it is something we do in order to be obedient because we have been saved. So I don't think it's water baptism. Some other views is some people think that the water could be pictured John's baptism. Nicodemus, you got to go do John's baptism, and then you got to come over here and get born of the Spirit. I just, I just don't see it. I don't see it. Some think water could picture Torah, being washed of the Word of God. All these interpretations, fine, but, but I just don't think that this is it. Now, D.A. Carson, he gives three great keys to interpreting this that I'm going to walk you through. The first one is this. We have to see verse three and verse five together because in verse three, he says born again. Verse five, he says born of water and spirit. So whatever born again means, it's the same thing as water and spirit. Whatever water and spirit means, it's the same thing as born again. And there's a good chance that born again is speaking of one birth. Therefore, water and spirit must be one birth as well, not two. Secondly, there's a preposition in the phrase. Literally in the Greek, it says this, of water and spirit. That's all it says, of water and spirit. It does not say of water and of spirit. If it said of water and of spirit, those would be two different things. But because it says of water and spirit, there seems to be a conceptual unity here. So it's a water hyphen spirit. There's something where these two things are really describing one thing, even though they might emphasize different parts within that one thing. You having fun yet? This is what I do all week. And I get to share it with you. Isn't that so fun? Thirdly, Nicodemus is supposed to know what Jesus is talking about. How in the world could he know what he's talking about? There's only one place that I could think of, the Old Testament. He was supposed to already know this from our Old Testament scriptures. Where could he possibly have read this? I'm so glad you asked. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 20. 
5. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 25. God speaking, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. Water, what does water do? Cleanses. And he says exactly how. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Water equals cleansing, cleansing of filthiness or sins and cleansing of an idolatrous heart. Look at these are connected. Verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Water cleaning, new heart inside of you. That speaks of transformation. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Washing, cleansing, new spirit, the Holy Spirit. And because of the Holy Spirit, there is now a new obedience in which you bring to God. So putting all that together, Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born of water and spirit. There is one birth where there is a washing of water and renewal done by the Holy Spirit. That's the conclusion I have come to. There is a renewing, washing, regenerative act in conjunction with the work of the Holy Spirit who was poured out and brings a brand new heart where you now walk and you follow and you obey God. This birth is something that is from without. Salvation is a work of God. The Father sends the Son. The Son sacrifices Himself. The Spirit is poured out and comes and affects these things we just read in the Old Testament. Nicodemus, you should have known this. This isn't new. This is not a brand new thing. Jesus is simply going to clarify, though, how this actually happens. Verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Humans give birth to humans. And since Adam and Eve have fell, sinful humans give birth to sinful humans. None of us can give birth or bring about the next generation of offspring and make them brand new in the spirit. No, we are passing on that sinful nature. We all inherit it and we're impacted by that. But the spirit does something human flesh cannot do. It makes you new brand new, the very transformative inward act where you can be cleansed and now walk with God and obey him. And only the spirit can do that. We can't do that for one another. He says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Do not be astonished. This is not a completely new teaching. He says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So in the same manner is everyone who is born of the spirit. You can not see the wind, but you can see the effects of it. In the same way, you cannot see the spirit, but you can see the effects of it. No one saw the spirit literally come upon David. It wasn't a visible thing where you could videotape it and watch it again, but the spirit came and we saw the effects of it. Because in the very next chapter, 1 Samuel 17, he takes down a giant way bigger than him with a sling. That doesn't show how great David was. That shows how great the Holy Spirit is to take the youngest boy in a family, to take a sling and to take down a giant. It's God who gets the glory in these instances. In that very chapter, the battle belongs to the Lord. The Lord is the one who defeats him, not necessarily David. Samson, you didn't see the spirit come upon him, but you saw the effects of it. The guy takes a jawbone takes out pretty much a whole army. And the same thing is true for us in our lives. 
I didn't see the spirit come upon me. I didn't ask for it. I wasn't looking for it, but he did. How do I know? My life is completely different. The way I think, the way I act, the things that I desire, God has completely changed me. Verse 9, he says, Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? How, can, how does this even go about happening? And Jesus is actually going to connect the dots here of the spirit and now himself, which is probably why he brought the whole conversation up in the first place. Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? There's a key word here, the. Are you the teacher, the well-distinguished, famous, ruling teacher of Israel and you don't know this, eyes wide open? I remember being a part of a, a ministry where I was teaching uh, we dance, uh, Rock Steady Ministries. It was a dance ministry we did at the Rock Church years ago. And my brother, he's a professional dancer, and so he was training them to go out and do these dances, and I was teaching them to, to know gospel, to be able to share their testimony, stuff like that. And one of the girls one time asked me a question I didn't know, and she's like, wow, I thought you knew everything. <laughs> and I was like, no, I guess I don't. I mean, we all knew that, but to hear it out loud, like, that doesn't feel very good. You can imagine Nicodemus is like, oh, yeah, I guess I don't know as much as I thought I did. Well, where's Nicodemus supposed to know this? It's actually all over the Old Testament. It's really fun. Isaiah, I think 44 verse 3, God talks about, I will pour out my spirit on your descendants. Ezekiel 11, it talks about God putting a new spirit and a new heart in them. We already read Ezekiel 36. I will pour out, I will put my spirit within you. Joel 2, 28 and 29. I will pour out my spirit. I will put my spirit on all flesh and God will do amazing things. It's very clear in the Old Testament, God is going to bring his Holy Spirit upon people and in people and affect a brand new transformation where they would then follow people. And that's probably why you're here today because of that invisible, mysterious, profound work of the Holy Spirit. But you can see the effects of it because you stand here and you sing the name of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And if it wasn't for the Spirit, you wouldn't be able to do that. Verse 11, most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know and we testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. He tells Nicodemus very plainly, you don't believe. Jesus says, if I have told you of earthly things, earthly things are probably being born of the spirit, what he just talked about. If I've told you about that and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? If I told you how to get into the kingdom and you don't get that, do you really think you're going to understand life in the kingdom and even greater realities than that? Nicodemus, if you can't do math, two plus two is four, how do you think you're going to do if I bring calculus into the situation? Verse 13, it's a little confusing. I'm going to go a little slow here. No one has ascended to heaven. Wait, Sean, I thought Elijah went to heaven. Well, there's, there's something more specific Jesus is saying here, so I'm going to kind of fill in the blanks. No one has ascended to heaven that is to go there and then to bring back testimony and to share heavenly things. No one has gone there to do that. People have gone to heaven, but not to heaven and then brought back truth in order to speak of it in the way we're hearing now. There was this thought that prophets have done this. Moses, Elijah, maybe David, Abraham, where they went up and came down and shared some secret stuff and some people had secret things and other people didn't. Jesus squashes that. No one's doing that. 
No one has ascended to heaven, but this is what has happened. He who came down from heaven, the son of man who has ascended from heaven, he has come down and he is equipped to actually tell us of these heavenly things. Jesus is pointing out his testimony and his word above all other people to believe him and what he has said because it's absolutely true. It's wonderful that when you believe in Jesus's words, you're believing in the highest testimony and authority that you can believe on this earth. Over any human being, what he says is true and goes, and you can feel very confident to sit in that and go, I'm good. I know the truth. I actually know how the world functions. I know how it works. I remember being at San Diego State years ago, 2004, 2005, and I was taking a history class, history like 101, 100 Western civilization, and our, our teacher started talking about how Allah the God of Islam was the same as Yahweh, the God of Christianity. And I knew just enough to know that wasn't true. Wasn't bold enough to say anything. Praise God, there was a, a girl in the class, a woman in the class, and she started saying stuff. I was like, you go get him, girlfriend. <laughs> but I remember leaving there and I was reading the Bible and there was a verse where it says, I have more insight than my teachers for I meditate on your statues, Psalm 119. I have more insight. And that's how I felt. I was like, I actually understand more than you do, even though you're probably way more intelligent than I am, but because I have Jesus's words, I actually understand reality. It's profound, as you leave here, you understand and you see reality when you read the words of Christ and you believe them. Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so in the same manner must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. There is this really drastic, sad punishment in the Old Testament. They were disobeying God in numbers. God sent snakes. That's the one judgment I definitely wouldn't want to be a part of. Venomous snakes to come in to bite them for their disobedience or forsaking of God. God, just kill me now. Just kill me now, please. I don't want to be bitten by a snake. But God in his judgment also provided mercy. He also provided rescue. Moses held up the bronze snake and those who would look to that snake in faith, the snake couldn't save them. It was looking to faith what God said, God would rescue them from this. So that becomes a picture, a type of God's rescuing. We have a greater now, more reality of that ultimate rescuing. It's in the same way this was lifted up. God is going to lift up his son on the cross where he will die for the sins of the world. And that those who would believe would have eternal life. What is eternal life? John actually tells us in chapter 17, verse three, eternal life is to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. To know him is to have a relationship with him and all the benefits that go along with that. Eternal life is not just a place. It's not just a bunch of things you get. It's a person. It's a God that you get to know and you get to enjoy forever. Verse 16. I think Jesus' words end in verse 15 here. So some of your Bibles have red letters. Mine does. that keep going. And that may be true. Some people believe that Jesus keeps speaking to verse 21. I think John actually steps in now in verse 16, and he starts to give a summer, summer, summary commentary on what has just been said here. Why do I think that? Because John speaks about Jesus differently than the way Jesus speaks about himself. And so the titles used here and the way they're used sounds like John, not necessarily Jesus. Does that change anything that it's got? No, it's still God's word. It's still Jesus's word in a sense, but directly I think John is speaking here. John says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God so, the word so here is important. So does not refer to degree, it refers to manner. 
degree would be so much. How much do you love me, son? So much. I don't think it's saying the degree of so much. I think it's speaking of the manner and the way in which he did it. Why do I think that? The Greek word hutos means that. It does not refer to degree. It refers to manner. In this way, in this manner. Also, the Greek word hutos, we just saw it used twice in that exact same way. Look at verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes. You cannot hear the sound of it. Or, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from, where it goes. So, it's the same word, so. In this manner, in this way, is everyone born of the Spirit. Verse 14, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Even so, who tells? Same word. In this manner, so must the Son be lifted up. So when we get to verse 16, I think this is what it's saying. For God, in this way, loved the world. It doesn't negate the emotion. It's still a part of it, but the emotion is not what's first emphasized. It trails along with the truth. For God so loved in this way, to this extent, the world. Who is the world? The world is the rebellious, dark world of sinful people that raised their fist to God and said, I want nothing to do with you. That is who God loved. And what is the way in which he loved them? He gave his one and only son. Only begotten here is not a good translation in my opinion. Begotten speaks of birth. One and only speaks of uniqueness. And that's the idea here, uniqueness. One and only. How many sons did God have? One. And God gave that special relationship for his enemies, people who hated him. That is profound. Would you give your son or daughter to die on behalf of someone else? I don't think, honestly, I really don't think any of us could say yes. I'm not that good. I do not have the love of God. I do not have God's love to that extent. I'm not that good. I'm not, I couldn't do it. Me, maybe, possibly, probably. But my son, my daughter, I'm sorry, you're in trouble. But God in this way loved the world that he gave his one and only son for this reason, that whoever would look to him and believe, they would not perish in their sins. They would not receive the due punishment, but they would actually have everlasting life, a relationship with God, with their father, with their creator. What is behind all of this? It's God's love. Did God have to love you? No. Was God forced to love you? Did someone put a gun to his head? No. Was it the best deal? Uh, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. What's the best deal? No. Do you know why God loved you? It wasn't because you could make him happy. We actually made his existence a whole lot more sufferable. <laughs> Did God love you because you're so talented? Because you're so good looking? Because you did everything just right and you're just, he just loves how you do everything just right? No, that's not why God loved you. Do you know why God loved you? Because he chose to love you. Out of a free will of his own volition, without anybody forcing him, he chose to take his love and to place it on you. Who were you? You were the world. All of us were in the world, rebellious, dark, sinful, don't want nothing to do with you people. That's where God loved you. That's where he showed his love. In this way, he went into a dark place and he gave you his one and only son so you could have a relationship with him. That is absolutely profound. The love that God has for you. What do you do with that love? You trust in that love. You rest secure in that love. Christianity, our faith is not this. Work really hard 
And if you do good enough, then maybe God will give you his love. And then you got to do it again tomorrow. And then a year from now, oh, yesterday didn't count. You got to do it again. That's a very terrible way to live. And we've all probably have lived that way at some point or can struggle with those thoughts. But you know what Christianity is? God extended his love to you before you even knew it, gave it to you freely. And now because you have received and you rest in that love, now you do good because you already have it. You see, you live from that love, not to get that love. We've already talked about one application of trusting the testimony of Jesus. Our second one here is trusting God's love, resting in that love. We talk about love, we sing about love a lot, but it's good for us to meditate on the things we've talked about this morning. Freely gave you that love, not because of anything inside of you, not because of anything you can do. Oh, I got to save Sean, because if I don't save Sean, then no one's going to hear the gospel over here. No, God doesn't need me. He's been gracious enough to allow me to stand before you. And that blows my mind. If you only knew where I came from, it's just crazy. I wasn't seeking this out, but God decided out of his own good pleasure to take somebody who was not a reader, not a thinker, beyond sports trivia, I'm going to take that kid and I'm going to have him stand before people and give me glory. And that, that's nothing to do with me. It's everything to do with God. Yeah, amen. And the same thing for all of us in our gifts. God chose to give you that to, to bring glory and honor to himself. And it's so wonderful. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The first time God sent Jesus, it was a rescue mission. It was to save you. We're all, in a sense, pictured as drowning, floating in the middle of the ocean, nothing to hang on, and we don't have much time. And God sent his son to rescue us from that. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. Everybody in this room right now, you can know where you stand with God. Everybody in the world can know right now where they stand with God. How do you know? because it depends on how you respond to Jesus. If you believe in him, God says right now, your condemnation, gone. Your judgment has now been transferred to Jesus Christ. God has hit his gavel. You are clean. You are free. No more punishment. You're good. Hallelujah. Your love makes me sing. But if you do not believe in Jesus, you actually stand in a place of condemnation where you are still responsible for your sin and you will pay the penalty for that. But God so loved you that he extended his love to you because he doesn't want you to pay for your sin. God is a good God. And he calls us to believe on his son that not only would we be forgiven, but we'd have eternal life. Remember what eternal life was, to have relationship with God. You can trust God's verdict. We can trust his testimony we can trust his love. You can trust his verdict. When God says in Christ, you are forgiven, you need to believe that. Thank you, Lord. Let it go. Move on. Walk with Christ. We don't have to go back and visit it and dig up the sins. And are they really taken care of? And, and am I really okay? You are. Why? Because God has hit his gavel and given a verdict. And in a sense, get out of the courtroom. You're good now. Let's go live life together. I'm so preaching to myself right now. Verse 19, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. 
this is the crazy part. The light actually came. And we remember from the prologue, the first 18 verses, the light is the word. The created word became a human to reveal the light, the truth of God. He actually came into the dark world. And what did the dark world say? We don't want to come into the light. They were convicted. They knew they did wrong, but they didn't want to come in. Why not? Because they were full of pride and shame. My pride and my shame is keeping me from going there because I don't want to be exposed for the bad things I do. Don't do this. Whatever you have, pride, shame, whatever it is, throw it out. Because when you bring your sin to God, what does he do with it? He's merciful. He is merciful. He wants to be merciful. He extends his mercy. You have nothing to fear with a merciful God when you bring him your sins, the ones you know and the ones you don't, and say, here, take it, please. I can't handle it. Absolutely, I'd love to take it. I created a plan just for this. But if you will not bring your sin to him, known and unknown, you will not receive his mercy. It's hard to even say. You won't receive it because you've rejected his. And there's no other mercy available. Don't leave here. Don't leave here. Don't leave this earth without bringing your sin to God and trusting in the name of his one and only son. Verse 21, but he who does the truth comes to the light. Why do we come to the light? This is what John points out in reality and probably for encouragement to his original audience. He who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. And we come into the light excited saying, look at what God has done in me. All the good works, all the fruit, all the repentance, all the whatever, it's God's spirit poured in and doing his work in me. God gets the glory. We've been blessed to see today that God has made very clear the lyrics to his song of salvation. And these are the lyrics. And you must know them. This is Christianity 101. This is the first step. Without it, you're really not gonna get anything else to make sense in your head. You must be born of the spirit by faith in Jesus Christ to enter into God's rule. And when you do, you will have that cleansing, renewing of the spirit. You will have a new heart and you will be enabled to obey God now like you never were before. As you leave here, trust the testimony of God, the testimony of Jesus. Trust and rest in his love. And lastly, trust his verdict. When he says something is true of you, believe it. Let's go and ask God for prayer now with these areas of trust. Gracious Father, thank you that in this way, to this extent, you love such a dark world. I'm reminded of what D.A. Carson said. Your love is so amazing, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. Thank you that you loved us in our sinfulness and our brokenness, and you've made a plan to restore the whole of us. Lord, bless your people here to trust in you, your love, to trust in, in the verdict of what you have said. Let that really sink home that they could rest, rest once and for all. For those restless minds and hearts, Lord, let them rest. Let your spirit bring them rest. Even if they can't pray or can't do it, let them rest because you grab a hold of their heart. And Lord, for those who don't know you, draw them, woo them, and may they come and say, yes, Lord, I want your mercy. I need it. Lord, thank you for the words that we've all known in so many ways, but have got to touch upon just a little deeper today. Lord, be glorified in all that we do and help us to take delight in you as we come to the light and say, look at my God. He's so great. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.